We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Bunurong people, and pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We recognise and respect their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. Welcome to the Open Book Podcast, books, events and conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm Lee, and in this episode, Susanna and Mina discuss two novels, Gabrielle Jackson's Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies, and Yamiko Kadoda's Emotional Female. Trent gives us the first instalment of a new series we're doing called So You Think You Don't Like, concentrating on graphic novels. Robin, Allison, and Penny talk about the book Animals Make Us Human, edited by Leah Kaminsky and Meg Keneally. Plus, we'll have two title reviews from library staff members Lauren and Fiona. Hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Mina, and I'm an information librarian at City of Greater Dandenong. Today we'll be talking about two books. One of them is Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies. Hi, and I'm Susanna, also an information librarian from City of Greater Dandenong Libraries. And the other book that we're talking about is Emotional Female by Yumiko Kadota. Uh, Emotional Female um, is a book that I just could not put down. It's essentially about a surgeon, a Japanese-Australian surgeon working in various hospitals in Melbourne and Sydney. And basically it's about her her experience working as a plastic surgeon um, in an emergency department and the stresses and strain that she's put under um, and the misogyny and the inequality that she experiences along the way. Um, I found it a book that was um, quite... Uh, riveting and I learnt a lot that I didn't know about the healthcare system. Pain and Prejudice is the other book that we're talking about and that's by Gabrielle Jackson and she's an Associate News Editor at Guardian Australia where she's also worked as an Opinion Editor. Gabrielle was first diagnosed with endometriosis in 2001 and then in 2015 she was diagnosed with adenomyosis. After her diagnosis, she started to write about endometriosis for The Guardian and became interested in how women's pain is treated in modern healthcare systems and has been researching and writing about the topic since then. Her central thesis in this book is that women's pain is often dismissed and that their illnesses are misdiagnosed and ignored. One of her quotes uh, early on is that women are treated as unreliable witnesses to their own health while diseases that mainly affect them are under-researched, even when it comes to diseases that affect both men and women, symptoms and treatments are mainly studied in men, which mainly leads to misdiagnosis and under-treatment in women. Mm. Um, I don't know if our listeners all know what gaslighting means, but essentially gaslighting is where you are meant to feel, you are sort of either consciously or unconsciously made to feel like you are going mad, like you are crazy and that um, anything that you're experiencing is not the reality. And it can be very confusing for people, medical gaslighting. And both authors experience this um, in their their books that we've read. Did you feel that? Yeah, absolutely. That both of the books are related in that way of the idea of hysterical emotional women and that that your experiences are, yeah, not based in reality. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the... One of the books is talking very much in an investigative journalist kind of a way about how that happens and why that's happened and goes into the history of hysteria all the way back to um, Plato and Aristotle and the way they Mm -hmm. talked about hysteria and the uterus and then all the way through to Freud and the origins of gynaecology. Absolutely. Yeah, and then with Yumiko's book, she's Mm. talking about being 
gaslit about her her um stress and anxiety that she's experiencing exactly at work being overworked her burnout and then also Mm. and knowing that it was coming as well knowing that if she caught if she said that i'm i'm burnt out i'm depressed as later on you find out in the book that she becomes depressed and has ptsd that Mm. the people she works with will Mm. won't believe her yeah absolutely um and and the thing that the thing that really kind of spoke to me with her book um, was that she had a few, I guess, lessons that she wanted to teach the reader. Um, one of them was to put your health, mental and physical, over work. Your company can easily replace you, but you can't replace your health if you overwork yourself. And and also to remove yourself from toxic environments, and this is in any situation in life, this will be de- detrimental to your health down the line. And I think that um, Yumiko actually realised that she was working in toxic environments, working as a surgeon in various hospitals. And the sad thing is, is that there's still very much a gender disparity with with pay, and as and you know and and other conditions and stuff and and I and she mentioned a couple of times some really sexist things like for example um, people sort of were a bit particularly the male surgeons were reluctant to to have her do serious surgery because they thought she might become in inverted commas hysterical or she might end up having a baby God forbid and then have to leave her job. Um, mm-hmm. Like that was so any yeah, at all. yeah, exactly, exactly. And I and I also found um, with um, with Gabrielle Jackson, um, she she's talking about how women are socialized to believe that their pain is normal. Um, Yumiko was also made to feel that how she was feeling with the stress and anxiety was also normal, mm, um, even though mm, yeah, years were not because she she does she mentions in one. Um, in one quote where she works a two-week cycle and she works mm. about 180 continuous hours. I know, I couldn't believe so that. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And so she was she was on call 10 days a fortnight when her uh, the other registrar in the in the surgery program was doing four days a fortnight. And she, when yeah. she brought this up with the with her um, with management. Mm. There was just nothing done about it, and they were just told. She was just told, "This is the way it is. We've all done it. You should be able to cope, yeah, and all those types of things." And just fobbed off all of her concerns, even though it was completely um, unbalanced. Yeah, that idea of companies being able to replace you, but you're not being able to replace your health. Um, was making me think about workers being told to become indispensable. And, mm. of course, there are very few jobs where that is actually possible. So workers are striving for something that is unattainable, working harder, trying to be more productive and ultimately burning out, as Yubiko did. Um, this reminds me of a book that I saw a patron take out the other day, which is called Work Won't Love You Back by Sarah Jaffe, which we mm-hmm. obviously have in the library, um, which is an examination of the exploitation that arises when we are supposed to work for the love of it and endure poor paying conditions or feel like we, we can't speak up where passion is supposed to be its own reward mm-hmm. whereas you know work should love its people people shouldn't mm-hmm. have to love work and they should you know value their greatest asset which is their which is their people yeah and also Yumiko said something similar as well she said don't kill yourself for a job that would replace you in a week if you drop dead oh yeah wow <laughs> So true. <laughs> I love it. I just over that over the time of reading that book, I, I began and I wasn't sure about it, and then I, by the end, I just loved her. Like I fell a bit in love with her. Yeah, she's great. I follow her on socials mm-hmm. now. So yeah, she's wonderful. Is there book? I found her book really easy to read because her writing style, I thought, was quite um, sort of um, gripping and also. Um, even though, even though I'm not a I'm not a healthcare professional, she explained things in a way that I could understand what the procedure involved. Yeah, which the stories about the surgeries that she did, 
Um, mm. She became a hand surgeon. Were were mm. very gripping. You know, they were quite thrilling, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I agree that her her writing style was very approachable as well. It was very open. She kind of didn't. She would bring up these things that had happened, mm. but didn't make any big claims about what that meant. It was yeah. like towards the end of the book, she was talking about how she was learning new terminology around microaggressions and yeah. was really thinking about it in terms of misogyny um, mm. and discrimination. But she, in the most of the most of the book, she wasn't talking about those um, topics. She was just talking mm. about her story. It was very yeah. personal, yeah. which you know, it really was very engaging. Absolutely, and now I'm. Um, I've seen that she's a a advocate for mental health and for physical health, mm-hmm. and she actually um, teaches now. She's a um, academic. Oh right, okay. Oh, I didn't see that. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing that she said that I loved, and I think Gabrielle Jackson said something similar, was in her book. Um, Yumiko says, "I am reclaiming the pejorative." term emotional if you've ever been called that before I stand by you being emotional makes us human and I'm certain it made me a better doctor to my patients keep being emotional it's a beautiful thing yeah that's amazing isn't it because there's that negative and positive connotation she's talking about that positive connotation of being an emotional female mm-hmm. where she was called an emotional female because sometimes well, some of the things that she was bringing up about her burnout and those types of mm. things and the repercussions for her of her overwork, she mm. was made to feel like she was an emotional female. But also leading up to that, her experiences when she was working with patients and sometimes she was brought to tears and she was mm. made to feel less than and she was often then cut out of the next surgery because, oh, you might not be able to handle it. But she was mm. just expressing that her care for her patients and... Um, well, I listened to it. First. Oh, I did, great. Yeah, great. I actually listened to both of the books. I started reading um, Pain and Prejudice mm-hmm. and I was liking it, but then really just in terms of time I thought, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And I did find that a lot easier going. Um, I didn't find it hard to read Pain and Prejudice, but it's a lot more dense. There's a lot of research in there. There's a lot of references oh, yeah. to other, yeah, other articles and research and people. And if you wanted mm. to, and I can tend to be one of those people, you end up just googling all of these things the whole way through, mm-hmm. rather than just letting it sort of the story wash over you. Because it's yeah. not really a story. It's kind of about her diagnosis, but that was more of a catalyst to write an investigative mm. piece of journalism, mm. a long, you know, very long form investigative piece of journalism. So. Yeah, yeah, although I enjoyed it, when you compare the two, Yumiko's is this personal piece um, where her catalyst mm. was her burnout and then um, Gabrielle's catalyst was the diagnosis, but then we didn't learn a lot about her personal story. We didn't learn yeah. much about her or anything about her family, which is totally fine and it probably wouldn't have been appropriate mm. in that book anyway. Yeah. But Yumiko, we learned so much about her life, yeah. her childhood, her family, where her family came from. And in mm. the beginning, I sort of thought, mm. why are we learning all of this? Yeah. What, you know, why aren't we getting to the, you know, to the good stuff? Like, why aren't we getting to what happened in the hospitals, what what her story was in the hospital? But mm. in fact, it really did come around to that um, being very explanatory about why she felt like there was a part of her that was maybe more emotional than other people, but, you know, not in a, in a pejorative mm. way at all, mm. but her experiences with close people, people that she had close to her who had died um, mm. and the way that she didn't feel like she could express it and that, that, that sometimes that was what when she was in surgery or something happened with somebody, um, she would be reminded of those times in her childhood. So we did have to hear about all that stuff. It was actually very relevant, I thought, because mm. Gab- Gabrielle Jackson's book, I, as you said, it was sort of more academic. It was almost like a like a PhD thesis. Um, not to say that it wasn't interesting to read. It's just that, you know, it was dense, as you said, and, and I sort of found um, Emotional Female just... Um, an easier read, but only because I think I'm just preferring escapist literature right now. 
do you know what's um I don't know if you're aware of this, Mina, you probably are, but you know that when they have done like anatomy um, models or anything that is being tested on people, it's usually designed for a male body. Mm, yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And Gabrielle goes into that quite a bit. She talks about the reasons why um, medical science really doesn't know that much about women and it's kind of part of her you know, the three things she really wants us to know is that yeah. medical science doesn't know much about women because most mm-hmm. research is conducted on men and male mm-hmm. animals even, not even female animals. Yeah, I know. So I male know. rats, even when the research is on a condition predominantly affecting women. So, yeah, yeah. I thought a couple of other things that she was wants to highlight, which I think are worth saying because mm. it's sort of the, the crux of the book is that mm. It's really important to teach and use the correct anatomical language of women's bodies so that we're able mm. to describe our own pain, describe yep. symptoms, and then that sort of helps to break those taboos around talking about our bodies and menstruation, menopause. Um, mm. And then the other thing that she wants us to know is that, that the medical profession treats women and their pain from this historical notion of hysteria in women. Yeah, um, and that's where, and actually hysterectomy comes from hy- hysteria. Yeah, and the, the, the yeah. origin of the word. Yeah, isn't that terrible? It is, that's right. Yeah, I think yeah. originally it was hysteria means uterus. So it's, you know, that idea that I know. Mm. The, the uterus is just wandering around the body, just, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's mm. almost like it's almost like they, they thought that it had a brain in it or something. Um yeah. but the but the but the thing is is that um um I kind of um I left um both books feeling validated as a woman but also a bit sad I felt mm. sad for Yumiko with her medical um mm. well as a, as her surgeon surgery career and the um the mental um breakdown that she had um which was completely understandable given the circumstances and the fact that she wasn't sleeping or eating or taking care yeah. of herself um and also with um pain and prejudice because like for example you know things like ovarian cancer um, or mm. other cancers and often not diagnosed until it's stage four because a lot of women fob off or gaslight themselves as it just being stress or it just being hormones or do you know what I mean? So it's, right, yeah. it's actually really scary whereas a man typically will get, this is just a generalisation, but a man will typically get a diagnosis a lot quicker because the assumption is that men don't often go to the doctor unless it's unless they really need to go. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And Gabrielle talks about that as well, doesn't she? That there's yeah. Um, yeah, men don't go off as, as often, but they mm-hmm. also that they know there's like this um, idea that they know their bodies better than women know their bodies. And um, mm. and also because like we're talking about and as Gabrielle talks about, because there's been only research on men and men's bodies, yeah. Um, there's there's no room for different symptoms within mm. um, ailments between men and women. So with like, she talks about heart disease and heart attacks and how women, like even now, like, it's only just kind of being properly researched now that heart disease in women mm. is um, the symptoms are so different to men. And so heart attacks can often go misdiagnosed as anxiety yeah. and people are told to go home, you're having a panic attack. Which yep. comes back again to that hysteria idea, yeah. but it's just wrapped up in also that idea that there hasn't been the proper medical research. So yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in terms of listening to them as an as an audio book, I also love audio books myself. Mm-hmm. Um, did you listen to them through um, our BorrowBox app? Yeah, great. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's fabulous. Um, There's nothing better sometimes than, you know, going going for a drive and and listening to to a book um, and, you know, the dulcet tones of the narrator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah it's I have great. A, a long commute to work, and actually, it was it was on. They're both on Libby, um, the audiobooks. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. it it made those those drives a lot quicker, and I got through them, you know, <laughs> without really 
putting that effort in, like you were saying before, with that escapist thing, sometimes it's been yeah. so difficult sometimes to pick up a book. And even for yeah. us who work in libraries, it's sometimes mm-hmm. it feels easier just to watch TV or something. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So when yeah. there's something that does have that kind of mm. emotional content, it's, it's nice to not have to think about reading it and it just kind of washing over you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Next up, we have Trent giving us the first instalment of a new series we're doing called So You Think You Don't Like. Hi there, it's Trent, and welcome to the first of our new segment, So You Think You Don't Like, blank. This time, I'm going to be addressing the question, So You Think You Don't Like Graphic Novels? If you already like graphic novels, then this isn't the segment for you. But if you don't like them, or some of this that I explain going forward sounds familiar to you maybe you want to give them another try we'll see understandably i can see that graphic novels seem like comics while there can be some difficulty and or disagreement in defining the difference between comic and graphic novel i will attempt to convince you hopefully with some success there seems to be an inherent literary stigma when it comes to comics as a non-serious hobby for children or adults who are yet to mature as if any stories with pictures are inherently inferior stories The mistake here is in thinking that graphic novels cannot be serious forms of storytelling because of shared characteristics with comics. But this is like comparing great works of literature with trashy romance novels because they are both books. Granted, comics can be quite fanciful, for example the stories that are told by Marvel or DC, but these are effectively power fantasies involving various superheroes and villains in black and white narratives of good versus evil, which tend to weave convoluted webs with their massive character rosters and extensive world-building, which as a result become less less accessible. In other considered examples, such as Garfield or Archie, which are intended to be light-hearted and explore themes that are easy to digest and are comedic, they might come across as childish, not necessarily exploring deeper or more adult themes. Of course, both comics and graphic novels use images as a primary method of storytelling along with text bubbles, but this is often where the similarities end. I'll give another example that, as of about the 12th century in Japan, they have used what they call manga, or directly translated to impromptu pictures, but ultimately one of their forms of literature. Um, They've used the comic to tell some pretty amazing stories, and I'll give an example of one later down the line. Again, they've seen it as a serious form of storytelling, whereas perhaps in the Western world we only see pictures as their own thing, whether great works of art, or stories as only words, as in novels. But I hope that by the end of this segment you'll want to give a graphic novel a try, which is a bit of a combination of the two. Now firstly, graphic novels tend to tackle far broader themes or genres than comics. For example, they cover subjects such as history, existentialism, bike riding, identity, music, etc., just like with regular novels. Additionally, they can utilize a great variety of art styles depending on their illustrators, often employing abstraction or metaphor to convey part of the story. For example, a novel may not be able to adequately describe something through text, and a film may not be able to adequately construct the image of some ideas or entities. A graphic novel is perhaps closest to animation in its expression, while still remaining a book, unique in its ability to represent artistic expression in both text and image simultaneously. It is for all these reasons that I believe that graphic novels are an equally important medium for storytelling as any other, and will have some stories that are exclusive and best told in this format. I'll now try to provide some personal favourites. I already reviewed The Sandman by Neil Gaiman in our first podcast, if you want to go back and listen to that as well as a quick summary if you want to give them a try. Firstly, we'll go with one of the most important graphic novels written. It is Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which is a story set in the midst of World War II, told from the perspective of the author's father, a Jewish Holocaust survivor. Aside from tackling a harsh yet important tale of survival through the cruelty of this time, the artwork itself is an interesting metaphor that the author uses by portraying human cultures as anthropomorphic animals. Specifically, the characters are human-sized, but the Jewish people are mice, the Germans are cats, Americans are dogs, etc. There's a few other cultures represented, but I'll leave it to you to discover if you choose to read it. The art style itself is 
gritty and in its it's black and white for a start so it's the colorlessness I think is quite appropriate given the subject matter um, some of the images can be quite messy but I think that it's appropriate again to the story that it's trying to tell the artwork here goes hand in hand with the time period the the horrible nature of of the time that was happening and Again, it's well-deserved of the awards that it's won, and if you do wish to try something, albeit something a little bit heavy-handed, Mouse is a great graphic novel, great introduction, um, but don't let it, its heaviness perhaps get you down. There are plenty of other things that are a little bit more light-hearted, or at the very least, still dealing with some adult concepts. Another graphic novel that I'd probably recommend is Watchmen by Alan Moore. This is also a film, but both mediums tell slightly different stories where the graphic novel tells a little bit more and with additional nuance in some of the side stories. Some characters are left out of the movie, obviously, because movies ultimately have a certain amount of time, whereas a graphic novel can take its time. You can read it over a few sessions. Well, on the surface of it, it is a superhero story about a group called The Watchmen. One of the first questions it does ask about such a supergroup is... Who watches the Watchmen? It raises questions about what the sort of power superheroes have can do to society, but also what it does to the individuals that have those powers, as in, does it eventually corrupt them? Are these superheroes helpful? Does society begin to over-rely on such help? Can the power that these superheroes have turn itself inward and destroys those it is trying to help, or even the individuals who possess them, or perhaps just make them completely detached from the society that they're a part of. For example, one of the major characters is a character called Dr. Manhattan, who was a physicist, caught in an accident, and becomes a godlike creature, who at first helps people, stops wars, can teleport, can multiply himself, but over the course of his time, eventually becomes so detached because he is no longer human. He has powers that are well beyond them, and just doesn't feel that he relates to them, eventually running away to Mars and building himself a little city. He sees no point in helping people anymore. But there's also a far greater story happening that I'll leave to you to discover if you wish to read it. This is a bit of an older story, written in 1986, but it's aged very well and remains quite topical, especially today where superhero films are so popular. And I think it's still a good critique on the superhero itself. Now, if neither of those sound particularly interesting, or maybe you want something a little bit more real, I might suggest one recommended by Lee, one of our other podcast contributors. This graphic novel is called You and a Bike and a Road by Eleanor Davis. The story is a simple yet impactful one, with the author or illustrator, author and illustrator, telling of her experiences as she travelled on a bike from Tucson, Arizona, built by her father, back home to Athens, Georgia, which is an almost 3,000 kilometre trip. But the story is also about much more than that. As some reviewers have said, it is a story of self-discovery, as well as the characters and her interactions that she has along the way. Perhaps we can convince Lee in a future podcast to review this particular graphic novel. As I said earlier, I was going to cover a manga series, which is what the Japanese call their comics. And while perhaps a little bit more lighthearted in its expression, I think that the writing in this particular series was very well done. Uh, for me, I would compare it to some of the greatest mystery novels I've read. Um, it's a story called Death Note. While on its surface it seems quite unbelievable, which I think is fair enough, I do prefer the fantasy and science fiction, but I also, prefer the, I also appreciate the metaphor that they can provide. In this instance, it's a story about a young man who finds a book called The Death Note which is a tool used by death spirits or death gods to end people's lives effectively. Humans are not meant to have this sort of power. And in having access to this particular book, he's able to write people's names into it and as a result, uh, kill them. If he writes the cause of death, that's the cause of death. If he doesn't, then they just die of a heart attack 30 seconds from after the moment that he writes their names. All he has to do is think of the person think of their name and how they look and the book will do the rest through whatever power it has as a result he starts to 
take it into his own hands to end the lives of criminals and those who hurt others. He becomes judge and executioner for the entire planet. And some people appreciate what he does and some people don't. Ultimately, he is a vigilante and he is hunted down by various forms of, um, what's the word, enforcement services, eventually earning the eye of an individual called L, who hides his name, who is very reclusive, but the kind of detective that you would imagine Sherlock Holmes would be in a supernatural world such as this. Again, it's a very interesting type of cat and mouse type game. The villain, you never quite can tell who's the cat and who's the mouse at any given moment, where one character has the upper hand against the other, and that's the kind of fun that this book can have, and being written and drawn in its style, I think lends itself immensely. Well, you do get to see some of these death gods, you get to see the expressions on faces as the characters interact, and I would highly recommend this one if you want to give Japanese comics or graphic novels a try. Now, before I make this segment too long, I will end it here. Uh, there's so much more that we could discuss about graphic novels. And if you see me in the library and want some further recommendations or perhaps more reasons to start reading graphic novels, come and see me and have a chat. Have a great one. Bye. And now... Robin, Allison, and Penny talk about the book Animals Make Us Human, edited by Leah Kaminsky and Meg Keneally. Hi everyone, I'm Robin, and we're going to chat today about the book Animals Make Us Human, edited by Leah Kaminsky and Meg Keneally. The book contains, contains short stories, anecdotes, or information by many Australian writers and scientists as they talk about their connection and relationship with all kinds of Australian wildlife, from Tasmanian devils and spiders to fish and bird species. The book was conceived as a result of the devastating bushfires in 2019-2020 and was designed to raise money for the Australian Marine Conservation Society and also the Australian Wildlife Conservancy and also to highlight the diversity and vulnerability of Australian wildlife and remind people of the wonders of nature. We thought it'd be nice to include some of our library staff in the discussion, hear their thoughts about the book and also find out about some special bonds that they have with some of their unique pets. So we have Alison with us. Hi. And also Penny. Hi. So both of you, welcome to the Open Book Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Firstly, I'd like to talk about some of the stories in the book. Um, Alison, what was one of your favourite stories? Um, the story that I enjoyed the most was the one by Marissa Parrott about the Tasmanian devils. I've also always found them fascinating, slightly obscure and a little bit odd looking. They start out so tiny and then they grow up into to these fairly grumpy, annoyed with everything animals that have somehow survived against the odds. I learned quite a bit in Marissa's story, including that female devils choose their mates by smell because the ones that smelt the best had the highest chance of siring successes for the litters. However, the girls have to be quick. The males get so stressed over the short breeding season that they end up dying. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's very unfortunate. I'm going, to, I'm going to a few Tasmanian devil nature reserves in Tasmania, and I look forward to learning a bit more about these amazing little animals in person. Yeah, yeah, that will be great. I like that there was a range of wildlife presented in the book, so not only the familiar ones, but some lesser known and more unconventional ones as well. One of the memorable stories I liked was the one about the huntsman spider by author Geraldine Brooks. She talks about the huntsman that lives in her house. So it's not always the, the cute and cuddly creatures that fascinate and inspire us. She writes, I think he moves like a dancer, swift and lithe, graceful and powerful. And because of him, there are no mosquitoes in my bedroom. But more than that, he brings the wilderness inside my house. Thank you, friend. I thought that was beautiful. And she writes very eloquently and sort of makes me appreciate these creatures more, even if they are a little bit scary. <laughs> 
So, Penny, were there any stories that resonated with you? Um, I found Anne Berth's The Birds brought back lovely memories of watching the blue fairy wrens hop around my grandma's backyard. Um, my grandma had a fascination with the, her wrens. She would always throw the crumbs off the chopping board into the yard and watch while they pick up the crumbs. Though she didn't like sparrows because and would always complain when they would steal the crumbs, especially from the wrens or the, get her get into her chook yard and eat the chook's feed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I also really enjoyed um, Possum Magic, um, A Curly Tale by Claire Wright, um, as it so shows um, the interactions that we have with our wildlife. And um, in Claire's story, she describes a situation that often occurs with our wildlife on hot days. Um, I remember leaving shallow bowls of water in our backyard near the trees um, during the drought to ensure that our wildlife had water available. Um, another aspect of Wright's um, story she mentions is the viciousness and necessity of survival. Um, and during droughts, kangaroos and other marsupials can suspend their embryos during the early stages of development. And they do this when um, the environment doesn't have enough feed to sustain a, both a joey and mother and in um, Claire's story, that um, situation does occur with the possum. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to note how wildlife adapts to different conditions um, and how things like changes in climate and habitat um, really affect them. So these stories in the book show the connections that people have had with animals, either when they were growing up or in their local environment and they also highlight how animals can bring out the better parts of human nature. Now you two both have a special connection with particular creatures that you have as pets so I'd like to talk a bit about that. Uh, firstly Alison can you tell us a bit about your pet Morty? Yeah, so Morty is a Nandekonya parrot and she is now 17 years old. She is green, blue and black and she has little red socks on her legs. <laughs> I got her as an 18th birthday present from my parents when she was just three months old and we've been together ever since then. Um, owning a parrot isn't easy. They are highly intelligent and independent, plus they are equipped with what I call the ultimate in defence mechanisms, a beak. <laughs> she could very easily bite to the bone if she wanted to, but I'm very lucky that my girl is normally pretty calm and happy, so she really resorts to biting. Um, having Morty, it's always been an adventure and never straightforward. She started hurting herself when she was about four years old. She'd put holes in the skin under her wings. Mm. And over the years, this has moved on to her feet, and she's now a serial offender in removing layers of her own skin. I'm now an expert in Parrot Doctoring 101 until I can get a scene at the vets where they all know her by name. Oh. <laughs> we recently found out why she does this. She has uh, um, arthritis, osteoporosis, and scoliosis, so she takes out all that pain on her feet. Oh, She's wow. now on a um, barrage of daily medications, and they do help. Um, despite hmm. all the stress she's caused over the years, I wouldn't change a thing with her. There's nothing better than sitting down at night with her and she snuggles in as close as she possibly can and then she just gradually falls asleep. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, it's, it's very cute when she's all cuddly and sleepy and snoozy. <laughs> and I also have two tanks of tropical fish, which whilst they aren't quite as cuddly as Morty, they are no less fun. I actually spent the last lockdown training them to eat brine shrimp from a syringe because what else do you do when you're stuck at home and you can't go anywhere? <laughs> uh, having fish is a lot of work and they are very expensive, but I get a lot of joy out of them. Norbert, he's my half-moon placket dragon male better, lives like a king in his own private tank, and he greets me every time I come up to the stairs. The tank they're also really good for mindfulness. I still work from home a lot, so I find stopping what I'm doing and go to watch the tanks for a short amount of time really beneficial to calming my mind down and putting things into perspective. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's really lovely. Um, there's lots of health benefits to having pets. So as well as having 
fun with them and enjoying that the bond you have, that unconditional love, they can also be a very, very calming influence. Yeah, yeah that's really nice. And Penny, you have an interesting pet as well. Yes, so I have Freddie. He is a central bearded dragon and he's just over a year old. I've had him since he was three weeks old and um, fitted in my palm, basically. He Mm. is now the length of my forearm from my fingers to my elbow. Um, Most of that is tail um, and he is getting wider as well. (laughs) Um, He isn't really the most cuddly or affectionate creature, but I do believe he enjoys my company. Um, his enclosure's in the same room as my desk, and when I go into the room, he gets quite interactive, especially when I'm sitting at the desk for a while. Mm. Um, in the past year, I've learned um, so many fascinating things as he's grown and changed. Um, he actually has a third eye on the top of his head. Um, it's called the parietal eye, but it doesn't actually. It has all the organs as an eye, but doesn't actually see images, um, but detects light. Um, when he's listening to something, he often tilts his head to the side, which is really cute. Um, he can change colour really quickly based on his mood and um, temperature. So when he's grumpy, he turns a darker colour and flares out his beard, and that turns quite black. Um, his spikes, which are normally quite soft, turn spiky, and he also blows out his midsection to make himself look bigger. Um When he's cold, he often um, changes to a darker colour so he can absorb more heat. And if he is at his perfect temperature, um, he's a beautiful creamy orange colour. And um, to regulate his temperature when he's hot, he opens his mouth. Um, It does look like he's smiling rather goofily when he does that. Um, I never actually expected to have a lizard as a pet. Um, I've always been a dog person, and as soon as I moved out of home, I did want to get a dog. Um, eventually, I realised that it would be so efficient and unfair on the dog, as I'm not often home for long periods of time during the day. But I still wanted to have a connection with an animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after doing several months of research, I decided to get a bearded dragon. Um, Freddie relies on me to make sure that his enclosure has the correct temperatures and lighting and that he's getting a suitable diet. This responsibility has made me grow as a person as now I have a living creature who relies on me for everything. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I've seen pictures of Maudie sitting with Alison at her desk or sitting on her shoulder. So do you let Freddie out of the enclosure to wander around? Uh, yes, so Freddie um, does get let out, um, especially when I'm going to feed him because I don't like feeding um, live insects in his enclosure because they may hide and then start biting him later. Oh. Uh, so he gets fed on the floor in the study room and um, to my housemates' greatest fear that insects may escape um, <laughs> the same process but um freddie also yeah wanders around the room has a run around um he, he sometimes yes will sit on my shoulder for a bit but he's um yeah, often very active and doesn't quite want to sit and have cuddles mm. Mm. oh wow that, that's fascinating that really is a different a different kind of pet i haven't heard of um many people that have a a bearded dragon for a pet. (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, The book was written in response to the the 2019-2020 bushfires that resulted in extensive loss of habitat and wildlife. I was wondering um, what you remember about that time and what your feelings were. Um, So... With me, I was volunteering um, up at Swiss Creek over the New Year's during the 2019-2020 bushfires. And one thing I vividly remember is going outside about 10 o'clock one night and seeing the red glow of the fires outlining the surrounding mountains. Um, It almost looked like the sun was rising behind the mountains in the middle of the night, basically. Um, I found it uh, the rapid change Um, that the fires brought to the landscape was terrifying and terrible. Um, Perhaps, but they, by the end of the summer, you could see new growth beginning to spread. 
Um, I find it quite fascinating that bushfires have already always been part of the Australian landscape and so much so that some species of plants only germinate once a fire has gone through. Mm. Yeah, that's true. They have always um, been around. Um, but I think the scale and the destruction of this these latest fires was so immense. Um, I remember being stunned by by the numbers, so many thousands of acres burnt and, um, you know, so much wildlife that had perished. Um, but like you say, nature does, re does regenerate, but it was a, a very alarming time. Mm -hmm. And Alison, what was something that you value about Australian wildlife? And when I was 17, 18, I worked with a local wildlife carer and I actually got to raise three tawny frogmouth nightjars from tiny day-old chicks right up until they started to fly. I still even remember their names. They were Mumbles, Herbie and Egbert. I'd always liked birds of prey, but I think it was then that I truly started to appreciate these magnificent animals and how lucky we actually are to have them here in Australia. Mm. Yeah, that would have been a very... Um great experience to have that sort of um, personal connection with raising them um, from young and we'll, we are lucky to have such a diversity of wildlife in Australia and I think books like this one can help us to appreciate animals from a bit of a different perspective and hopefully make us want to protect them and their habitats even more. Absolutely yeah. So thank you, Alison and Penny, for sharing your experiences and insights with our listeners today. It's been great to chat with you and hear about your lovely pets. Thank you. Thank you. Animals Make Us Human is available to borrow from the library as an ebook, audiobook, or physical copy. It's a great compilation and well worth checking out. Finally, we have two title reviews from library staff members Lauren and Fiona. Hi, my name is Lauren and I am reviewing A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J Maas. Sarah J Maas seems to be the YA author of the moment. So as someone who always likes to know what others are reading and why there's so much hype surrounding a book, I decided to jump on the bandwagon and open up A Court of Thorns and Roses. This book is told from the perspective of Feyre, a fierce young woman who does whatever she must to care for her father and sisters as they struggle with poverty. That is, until one day her hunting has the most dire of consequences, which ends up with her being taken away to the dreaded land of the fairies that haunt the human world. This book is a romantic retelling of Beauty the Beast and the world building is so well done. It takes a classic tale and transports it to a really new place that I really wanted to learn more and more about. But for me, the chemistry between the high fae Tamlin and our heroine Feyre just wasn't what I was hoping for. A lot of this book's hype is centred on the relationship of these two and for me it just fell flat. It's possible this comes from my own desire to see strong female characters matched by their partners and Tamlin just wasn't it for me. Of course, this is a romantic novel and it does get a little spicy at times, but I just wish it had lent into this passion a bit more. The last third of this story is really where all the action happens, but by the time we reach there, I wasn't invested enough in Tamlin and Feyre's relationship to really root for them. There were other distractions, especially one that goes by the name of Resand, that drew my attention away. I still don't know about this series, which might not be the most satisfying review, but it's my honest one. I am going to read the next book in the series and decide whether it's worth continuing on with the rest. So far, the series has four main titles and several spin-offs, and I have read there are rumours of a movie. I'm intrigued by the world building, so let's hope there's more of that in the next book, enough to convince me that Tamlin and Feyre are really the star-crossed lovers they're purported to be. I'd recommend this book for lovers of fantasy and world building who like a little bit of romance as well. Though it definitely sits in the young adult genre, don't let that hold you back from giving this super popular series a Hi, go. My name is Fiona and I work for the City of Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm reviewing a book for you today called The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, which I listened to as a talking book via Borrowbox and which is available at the CGD Library in hard copy form.
The Midnight Library is a departure from my usual reading as it is in the fantasy genre. I would also label it as philosophical fiction as I will describe in this review. We are introduced to the novel's main character, Nora, in quite a melancholic way as the narrator is counting down the days before Nora kills herself. Eventually, Nora finds herself in a place between life and death and in a grey stone building full of books in shelves, as well as her old school librarian, Mrs Elm. Here she is in the Midnight Library, and Mrs Elm reassures Nora that there are infinite possibilities or lives to choose from. All Nora has to do is tell Mrs Elm what kind of life she wants to live, and she will pull a book off the shelf, and Nora steps into that life. There is also what's called a book of regrets, whereby Mrs Elm advises that regrets are just a load of bulldust. The only way to learn, she says, is to live. This is one of a sprinkling of other philosophies on life which are presented in this book. One by one, Nora steps into many, even hundreds of lives which she wishes from Mrs Elm. Nora's root life is left behind as she enters life as, for example, a swimmer, a guest speaker with a Wikipedia page, a glaciologist, a rock star, and many, many more lives. All of these lives are developments of parts of her root life, but which were never realised until she landed in the Midnight Library. While I enjoyed the philosophical aspects to the book, such as, and I quote, success is a delusion, or sadness and happiness, you can't have one without the other, or you can't understand life, just live it, and keep moving forward, it's never over till it's over. Despite these philosophies, there is a sense of despair and sadness to this book as Nora realises each life has its problems. Nora suffers from depression, that is how the book begins, and the melancholic thoughts she has float around until finally the Midnight Library is on fire and all of the lives burn up, and Nora actually discovers, with all the philosophies she learns, that she actually wants to live. She wants to live. That was my favourite part of the book, and it takes a long time to get there, but she does it, and it is a huge revelation on the part of Nora as the main character. If you like fantasy fiction and philosophies of life, you will most likely enjoy The Midnight Library. It was actually a bit too sad and despairing for me, throughout, but I'm glad it ended in the hopeful, positive way that it did. Thanks for listening. You can check out the show notes for more information on all the items we mentioned in the podcast, and you can place holds on them via the Libraries Victoria app or at our website, greaterdandydong.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries.